Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. I'm honored this week to welcome Dan Lighty to the I Could Never Do That podcast. Thanks for listening. Dan is a longtime runner. He is also a finisher of three Ironman triathlons and I believe 159 marathons, but who is counting? Uh, but I but I have Dan on the I Could Never Do That podcast today to talk about his experience as a heart transplant recipient back in 2015. And as you'll hear, his symptoms began in 2011 and his condition, although they were treating it through medication, it just simply continued to deteriorate to the point where in 2015, he was put on the transplant list and did receive a new heart quite quickly, actually. His life was ultimately saved by the heart of a stranger, but the impact as ever is so far reaching. And today we discuss the onset of his symptoms why it's so hard to be an advocate for your own health, but also equally why it's so damn important to be an advocate for your own health. We talk about the gratitude that he feels towards his donor and their family, and especially the medical team at uh, The Ohio State University who saved his life, why he wanted to return to normalcy after his heart transplant, and what he's doing now to give back now that it's been seven years. The great news is that his journey back still involves a bunch of running. And thanks to the life of his donor, Dan does still run and he's actually completed a couple of marathons since his transplant. He is also the chairman of the board of the Nationwide Children's Hospital Columbus Marathon, which if you have never run the Columbus Marathon, put it on your list. It's a fantastic fall marathon and the proceeds benefit the Nationwide Children's Hospital. And let me tell you, that does not go unnoticed when you're running those miles in Columbus. So please welcome Mr. Dan Lighty. Well, Dan Lighty, good morning to you. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon now. You are in Columbus, Ohio. It is. It is afternoon. I sometimes forget. Sometimes in the summer when you're busy doing things, you lose track of dates and times, but it is uh, about maybe one o'clock or so here. Yeah. And I'm a couple hours behind you. I'm in the Pacific time zone currently. So I just finished a run. I've got that post run glow. You're at your desk working very feverishly today. <laughs> But I want to frame our discussion around running and the efficacy of that post-run glow and your story about returning to running after a heart transplant that you had back in 
2015. So, so first, let me just frame you up. And if you don't mind, just giving me a little bit of backdrop on your personal story. If you grew up in Ohio, where you went to school, had you always been a runner? Yeah. Fill me in on some of those. Um, I grew up in Fremont, Ohio, smaller town in Northwest Ohio. Um, I went to a Catholic high school and then I went to Bowling Green State University, uh, majored in journalism, um, have been an athlete all my life, um, was a more of a tennis, competitive tennis player, played basketball and that, that sort of thing, but uh, mainly competitive tennis player, did a little bit of running to increase my fitness for tennis, but really never got into distance running, marathon running and others till I was 31. Oh, okay. Late bloomer. I'm a pretty late bloomer. And then I just ran a lot of marathons and other things in a short period of time that, you know, I got to, I'm now at, I think it's 159 marathons and uh, three Ironmans. And um, you just sort of caught, catch the bug and, you know, I, I understand, and you're a runner, obviously yourself, when you get the satisfaction of finding something that you really love to do, and you're willing to put in all the hard work that it takes, the hard work's enjoyable, you get great satisfaction out of it. And that that's sort of what I found in long distance running. And, you know, it was not just a physical thing, but a mental thing, too. So I'm a big advocate of, you know, whether it's running or finding something else, for me, running in that competitive spirit, just being competitive with myself to do the best I can, not necessarily with others, that, that's been a big influence, a big positive influence on my life. For sure. And there's also a wonderful social benefit. And you and I actually, even though we don't know each other, we share a friend in common, Carl Gruber, who has actually been on this, this podcast before because he is one of, uh, at the time, a few people who ran... 52 marathons in 52 weeks to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And now he's actually one of the race announcers of the Columbus Marathon, which I know you're chairman of, which we'll get to. But Carl, when I was, oh gosh, in my early 20s, he's he's a little older than I am. And he was this freak of nature is what I thought. Cause I was still in college and drinking way too much beer and eating, <laughs> eating like, yeah, roosters wings and stuff. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> but he would run to work every day. Yeah. He would and like shower when he got to work, work a full mm -hmm. day. And sometimes he would run the 12 miles home. And I was like, you are a nut job, but he is my inspiration for, picking up a pair of shoes and and trying to get my life a little bit back on track. So I understand when you said earlier how there's something when you start running, you it, the, the the physical benefits are obvious, but yet the emotional benefits can be even greater. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I I'm obviously like you a friend of Carl, I think the world of him. I will try to live up to his expectations on this podcast. Um, <laughs> sure I can do any better than him. But um, yeah, I, I've known Carl for a long time. Um, wonderful guy. Um, as you noted, you know, one of our finish line announcers. And I know we'll get to this a little later. The, the first marathon I did after my transplant, Carl was there to do the announcing when I came across the finish line. And um, you know, he's, he's a really special guy and he is inspirational. And it's funny, um, my, 
entry into longer distance running and marathons wasn't really because I was inspired by someone. A friend of mine back in 1995 made a crack that this person, uh, you know, I, I was talking about maybe running a marathon and they said, there's no way you could run a marathon. And it's sort of like, did the, I'm like, really? Because, and, and it came around at the right time because I sort of, you know, wasn't playing competitive tennis or anything anymore. And I was looking for somebody, something else to, you know, sink my teeth into to keep me in shape and everything. And I sort of took that as a challenge and it sort of drove me a little and I really got into it and I really learned to love it. And as you said, with all the benefits of it, and, you know, here we are today. So it's amazing when you talk to anybody who's into running, there are so many different great stories about what spurred you to go there. Um, some people find it by accident. Some people are looking for another outlet when they, like myself, when they've left something else. It, it really is fascinating because you can be in a room of 10 to 15 people and they all may have different stories about how they decided to get into running, no matter what level you are, um, what and how they got there and why they stayed there almost is such a great story too. Yes, and the fact that running is so simple innately, you just pick up a pair of shoes, put them on and get out the door and relative to whatever pace you're running or walking as it may be, there's something that's just so primal about that activity where it evens the playing field in life to me. I mean, I'm never more present in the, my moment than when I'm out there running, whether it's on the road or on a trail or God forbid, a treadmill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you had this passion and as we tend to do when we start to get into an activity, we almost sometimes like OD on said activity, you know, we become ridiculously addicted to that feeling and, and those friends and those groups and chasing times and chasing, you know, whether it's just number of finish lines or destination races. I mean, there's so many reasons to Correct. keep that ball rolling once it starts rolling, but something started to happen to you where you were clearly becoming an advanced runner. You ran a sub three, mm -hmm. um, but then something started to happen where you just weren't feeling yourself. Yeah. I had a situation where, you know, eventually, we all get a little older and we know when we get a little older, we may slow down a little, which wasn't a problem. But physically, um, uh, we had a group of my friends and the other benefit of running is you meet so many great people and you form, you know, some of your friendships evolve out of running. And, you know, we all lived in the same area together um, before we moved in Clintonville, which is a suburb of Columbus. And we would get together in the morning and on the weekends and we would all do our runs together. And I noticed on a lot of these runs in shorter distances, and we were really, you know, tuning up the time on it. It was a pretty relaxed run. I noticed I was getting a little short of breath and I was having a couple uh, situations where I felt a little dizzy and I knew something, something was going on. When you're an athlete and you don't have to be a world-class athlete, but when you're in athletics, I think that you know your body, you learn to know your body pretty well. So if something's gonna happen, you know, something's a little off. And it's at first I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe I've developed allergies. Maybe it's something else that, I, you know, I was having trouble catching my breath. I never, ever thought it would be anything heart related. 
um, so it, I, I, ironically enough, I, I finally broke down and went to see a cardiologist at the Ohio State University. And on, I, I went to get checked out and he looked at me and then um, I left and we we're gonna do a follow-up appointment. That very day I drove downtown and I had um, meetings, business meetings, and I, I went to lunch with one of my colleagues. And you know, right when we started that lunch, I felt like I was having a heart attack. And the squad had to come get me and took me. Um, ironically, at the end of the day, I ended up back being admitted at Ohio State, uh, where they did a, um, a, a procedure on a heart catheterization on me the next day and found out that I had cardiomyopathy. Mm. I have two, I have two questions, if you don't mind. One, Dan, how old were you when this happened? Uh, this was 2011. So what? 46, 47. Yeah. Um, you know, you get the old traditional thing is when you get in your forties, you start to watch, you know, I mean, even though we all are living you know, old, longer now and we're healthier, um, it, it's something that never really came into my mind that I would be subjected to that. Now I didn't end up having a heart attack. They, it was a cardiac like event, but what the, the bad thing they found out in that uh, heart catheterization procedure was that it left significant scarring on my left ventricle, which is the probably one of the worst places you can have it because that's the pump, that's the pump section that really drives the blood throw, blood flow throughout your entire body. So it was, it wasn't great news. Um, and, and then we sort of went from there. Tell me, you said you felt like you were having a heart attack. What did that feel like? This was a, a, like an acute hammer hitting me in the chest where I would I was sweating profusely. Um, I felt really lightheaded. Um, I couldn't catch my breath. And those are pretty sick. I mean, I, and I, ha I didn't have the pain radiating up and down like my left arm. So when I told them that when I got to the hospital, they were saying, well, you might not have had a heart attack. It might be something else. And, you know, they, they shot me up with blood thinners to make sure that there wasn't, you know, a situation or a clot in there. So they looked at everything and, and then they said, we're going to do this procedure on you. And that's sort of when this started, when I found out what the diagnosis was. They, uh, first obvious question I'm sure is, <laughs> did they suspect the running and the, and the amount of racing and marathons that you had done up to this point? and tennis, of course, did they think that was responsible or were they looking at genetics? How were they determining the cause? The, the first thing they asked me about was genetics, um, which is difficult for me because I'm adopted. So I really have no family history to go off of. Um, and then they looked at me and said, you know, you're a healthy guy. They asked about, you know, did I ever smoke? No, you know, did I ever do drugs? No. Um, I jokingly said I'm near one of the few near 50 year olds who grew up in the 70s and 80s who probably hasn't, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, which sort of got some looks. It's like, no, I'm serious. But they asked about my eating habits and I ate, a, you know, a, a, you know, a good, healthy diet. I didn't drink a lot. So um, nobody ever really suspected. Um, nobody asked me about the endurance sports or anything like that. That could be the cause because 
you know, we've seen great triathletes like Norman Stadler and, and others have to retire because, you know, what that has shown um, that sometimes the endurance sports, depending on your genetic makeup, can have those situations. One of the things they did tell me was, you know, your heart is a muscle in your body. And much like your quads or, or, or anything else, when you exercise, you get those microscopic tears when you're exercising, but then they naturally repair themselves when you're done. Um, they said they think the scarring came from when I did athletics, that my scarring on my heart was not healing properly. And that's why the scars were there. And in fact, as we went, Carrie, as we went down the process more, uh, one of my main doctors, Dr. Hassan, who is is, who is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life, who's helped save my life. You know, she said that if you hadn't been in that good of shape, you should have been dead two years ago. So once we got into finding out how bad the damage turned out to be, um, you know, it, it, the, the running and the shape I was in really did save my life even before the transplant. And that was in 2011 that you had that incident Correct. and your transplant. Well, let me ask this. Let me ask let me frame it this way. In that moment in 2011, did they identify you as a transplant uh, potential like that you were going to need it and it took until 2015 to get it? Or how did that, you know, that process take take three years between that yeah. incident and your actual eventual transplant? At the time, we did not because um, they felt they could help control it through medication. Um, and then when we went along the process, and, and I'll get to this in a second, um, the, the medication, because of probably like you, ha at the time, I had a very low heart rate. Well, the medications they give you are also meant to control blood pressure and other things. So it significantly dropped my heart rate. And I, there were a couple of times where I almost passed out. The beta blockers, correct? Is that? Yes. Correct. yes. Yeah. And it's just, you know, we went back and forth and back and forth. And mentally, for me, it was tough because it, we were at Ohio State. I, I left after a while and went to a couple other health systems because mentally I felt, well, they're treating me like an old person here who would have, I mean, it, it's very difficult because what I found out in the whole process is a lot of the programs dealing with cardiac issues, a lot of them are still working through how to deal with athletes and how to deal with younger folks, because a lot of the protocols are geared towards people who might may have diabetes or obesity problems or other things. Um, you know, they were telling me that it was hard to treat me because they I, I'm such an anomaly. And I'm sure, you know, your other guests that you talk to who, who've been in this have gone through that. So it's a lot of trial and error. I left and then came back to Ohio State um, through the uh, great referral of a, of a dear friend of mine. And I just had a talk with him when I came back and I said, you know, I, I'm different. I go, we, we have to listen to each other because here's what I'm going through. And the people of Ohio State that I dealt with then and moving forward were really accommodating. And I think we all learned a lot about each other in the process. And, and I joke and say, you know, you helped me a lot and hopefully I've helped you how to treat other patients 
because it can't, it's, it's got to be a moving target depending on the person. That's fascinating that you say that for, for a few reasons. And one is uh, Dr. Don Musalem, who I had on the show a couple of months ago, who also was a heart transplant recipient. She is a board certified lifestyle medicine physician, and she treats breast cancer patients from a lifestyle medicine perspective. So all of the pillars of lifestyle medicine, like sleep, movement, social connections, um, you know, managing stress, mm -hmm. lack of putting toxic chemicals in your body. As mm -hmm. you said, you were already sort of, mo you you were really good at those. Mm -hmm. So you weren't a smoker that had to wean off no. cigarettes. You weren't, uh, you know, an OB obese person that you had to wean off, you know, fried chicken. Yeah. It was, you, you really were this anomaly in the system. And several years ago, I went through some vascular issues of my own. And it was, and I'm sure you felt this way when you walked into like the cardio floor, uh, or the cardiac floor, not the cardio floor, the cardiac floor. And I was sitting in the waiting room of this vascular surgeon's office with people who had all the, the, the risk factors. And here I was, you know, bringing my bike up to do a stress test because I was not getting blood flow to my leg, but I wasn't like all of the other patients. And so, yes, the conversation is different. It's it, the protocols that they have to follow for 90% of their patients do not apply to you. Correct. We, we, I, I can't tell you, Carrie, how many times I walked in to a physician's office and they looked at me and they said, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I've got, you know, I've got cardiomyopathy and here's what's working and here's what's not. And you could see a little bit puzzled look. I mean, and these are smart, smart people who know a hundred thousand times more about this than, uh, than me. But I, I think the ones I really started to appreciate was when I sat down, when I came back to Ohio state and I felt listened to, if that makes any sense. I felt like they heard me and they go, Hey, this guy's different. And, and I'm a, I, I push the envelope. I want to know why and how we're going to do things. And all right, what's the plan? If this doesn't work, what's the plan? Um, and, and if you're, you know, if you're a physician and you're stressed and having to deal with a lot of patients every day, all the time, sometimes you don't have the time to sit down and invest in that. And that's no, that's no disparaging remark on any physician. That's the way sometimes modern day medicine and, and how they're driven can be. So I think once we got to that point and there was an acceptance on my part about, hey, I have to trust them and an acceptance on their part about, hey, I have to listen to him because he knows his body pretty well, obviously. Um, I think when when that was established at Ohio State, um, then we were off and, you know, we really made a lot of progress. And that was in your work with Dr. Hassan? That was Dr. Hassan and, and Dr. Ray Magorian. I mean, I could go through a million of them, um, but Dr. Magorian was the one who, when I came back, said that, and we ran some tests and he was the one who said to me, Hey, I, just so you know, I, I, I think we're going to eventually have to talk about a heart transplant. And Ray was the one, you know, when I was there who talked to me about it and he sort of described, he goes, well, I, I, I mean, I don't see that really right now in the near future, but you know, that timeline could change. 
and then um, you know trying to find things to I, I didn't have a lot of swelling in my legs and ankles which was good um, and I could still like I have a spinning bike a triathlon bike that I could still ride a little I had to really cut down my running a lot um, but I could still be active and I could still you know do core exercises and stuff like that but it was it reduced capacity but they told me they said look you're going to be probably once the swelling starts, you're going to go off a cliff. And then I was in and out of the emergency room a lot because there were a couple instances where, oh, I feel like I had a heart attack. Um, and then I had had a pacemaker implanted because they thought they could help me with that. Um, but I think it worked really for about two or three days. I felt better, but then it started to go off the cliff. And when you have heart failure like that, you know, the pacemaker helps on certain aspects, on certain aspects, it really doesn't. So I think once we got past the pacemaker not being effective, I, I think we knew where we were going. But it, it was very, it was a very sobering conversation with Dr. Magorian. And then um, I went, I think it was in early October, late September of 15, I ended up at the emergency room at Ohio State and I, I was not doing well at all. I, I had fallen off that cliff and then the curtains opened and Dr. Hassan came in. And I mean, I, I've never, I, I've been around a lot of great physicians in this process, but I've never been around somebody uh, between her and my transplant surgeon, Brian Whitson, that I have trusted so much in my entire life. Um, Aisha came in and she ran a bunch of tests and she just said, look, I'm just going to be straight with you. We got to put you on the heart transplant list. Um, and that's when you're sitting in an emergency room, that sort of, it, 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 Carrie was an interesting situation because my wife, Emily and I had just gotten married in April of that year. And Emily's, uh, you know, 23 years younger than me. And you have, you know, you have different reactions because I was so relieved when Dr. Hassan told me that because I said, okay, you know, it's a big, big thing to go through, but there's potentially light at the end of the tunnel that we're not getting right now. Now, Emily had, we had just gotten married and she's like, you know, am I going to be a widow at a very early age? Cause you don't know here. And it's a very, scary stressful thing to go through but i took it more like hey th this is great because we're making progress in whatever way we're going to go so you know it was something that we had to talk about as husband and wife about how we were each feeling about that because i was trying to put myself in her shoes um, because she was sort of defenseless she had to sit and she helped me obviously immensely to take care of me in certain situations but it, it was very stressful for her as well. Sure. And I'm sitting here thinking there had to be a moment for you, especially, but certainly for the two of you to feel so much anger or for you, particularly th this, you know, three to four years in between getting the diagnosis and, and now being put on the transplant list. And, but yet the frustration of having to go to different doctors and to, to fight, to be listened to like, were you ever just like, damn it. Like, why me? Why, why, why is this happening to me? I did not. I, I never really got to that point. Honestly, um, it was more frustration because look, my rationale was, um, 
this, there are a lot worse things in life that have happened to people. So, you know, people go through this. Why would I be the exception to that? Even though I did, you know, I know, and, and em, Emily and my friends, my wife, Emily, and my friends would ask me that. Are you upset? Are you bitter? Because you did everything right. You did everything. If there was a textbook of what you're supposed to do, you did it all right. And now you're in this situation. And I said, I never really looked at that. I, I'm, I try and be a positive person. It was more frustration. And part of it was my fault that, you know, I didn't feel I would at the beginning, I didn't feel I was properly being taken care of that. I was, as I said earlier, I was being treated as an older person and trying to find something that helped me. Um, and it wasn't working. It, I wasn't mad. I was more frustrated. I, I, in another health system that I won't name that I went to, I went to a doctor's appointment and, you know, I could still walk pretty well and came in and I sort of joked that I was out of breath and I had one person say, well, you should feel very lucky because you can at least walk in here. And it was like, well, I mean, I, I appreciate that, but I don't feel lucky. I, I don't feel lucky. So it, it, it was more, it was more for me being frustrated that there wasn't progress. Um, and as Emily will con uh, confirm to you, if you ever talk to her, I, I would sit there and say, you know, we put a man on the moon, but we can't help a fit guy who's going through a heart issue. So it, it, it was that level. But when, when Dr. Hassan, you know, who was great because she was just matter, very matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you on the list. Here's what it's going to do. Blah, blah, blah. Um, as we went through that process, I, I mean, I felt such relief and maybe I shouldn't have, but it was sort of, as I alluded to, it was a path forward for me. Yeah. I feel like any emotion that you experience in that moment and those months leading up to the actual transplant, I feel like every emotion is fair and on the table from <laughs> fear to relief, to excitement, to sadness, uh, and the article that I read that was in Runner's, Runner's World a few years ago, um, you know, talks about that, uh, you know, it's this paradox of emotion that you have to go through as the recipient of a heart transplant, because here you are given the gift of life, a second chance, if you will, and knowing that that came as a result of somebody who, who lost theirs. And sure. um, that's that's heavy. You know, that's, that's a heavy, heavy emotion. Um, you got, so, she, so Dr. Hassan said you're on the list, um, kind of the fall of 2015. Um, you went into the hospital December of 2015, because I think you fell off another cliff, literally, figuratively, not literally, yeah, but I, yeah. I had, go, I had to go in a little earlier in, um, cause what you're on the, they have to put you through a battery of tests, um, because you know, and, and, and we'll get to the emotional part with a donor in a little bit, but you know, when you're on there, they put you through a battery of tests. They put you through uh, dental tests. They have an optometrist come in and check your eyes. They have a dentist come in and check your teeth for, you know, because everything, you know, dental health is a big issue. They have to make assessments because there aren't enough hearts for potential recipients. So these medical teams, these transplant teams have to go and have meetings and it's agonizing for them because they have to say no to some people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if somebody is obese, if somebody smokes, 
you know, there are, there are risk factors to go through. And, you know, I had to go into the hospital and go through a litany of tests and, you know, at my age, I mean, you have to do stuff like a colonoscopy. You have, you know, they have to assess you for cancer. They assess your lungs. So even though you, they say we're going to put you on the list, you have to go through all that test and then they have to make a determination that you're an approved candidate. So I did that. I went on the list officially, I think it was October 19th of 2015. And then um, I went back in and I felt really bad. I mean, I couldn't get up out of a chair. It took all I had to get up out of a chair at my house, walk down to the end of our driveway and bring our you know, big trash can up for when it was trash day back to the other end. I was exhausted. Um, so we did get to that point and at Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, they wanted to admit me fully. And I said, you know, mentally, I just need to go home for a couple weeks. I just, I had been at the hospital for a little while through all these tests. And I said, I just need to clear my head a little. And then we agreed that I would come back uh, December, I think it was December 13th, because according to the federal rules, they had to bring me back as an inpatient and then put a catheter in through my neck to deliver medication to help the pumping motion of my heart. And once they did that with the federal transplant rules, then I became 1A and was eligible for a, a, a heart in a multi-state area. So that was the plan. And that's how I got there in December. And then it became a waiting game. Mm, mm. And I know from speaking with previous recipients uh, for various organs that that waiting game can be years. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm so lucky in the sense in, you know, Dr. Hassan and, and my team sort of laugh and say, yeah, you were lucky, but you were the sickest of the sick. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was, we were down. I, I didn't find this out until after the transplant, obviously, but we were down within a, a, a day or two that they might've had to put an LVAD in me, which is a partial mechanical heart that you wear a battery pack around your waist and tubes come out of your abdomen. And it, it, and the problem with that is it's open heart surgery and they basically take out the bottom half of your heart and put this partially mechanical heart in to keep you going. And then, but then you have to get off the transplant list for six weeks or six months until your sternum heals because it's open heart surgery. So my team did everything it could to find a heart for me because they, you know, my transplant surgeon said, you're, you're like an Indy car. Everything else is great, except you just need a new engine. And that was, that was one of the best descriptions I've heard. Well, and it's so weird that you say that, Dan, because as you were describing all of the battery of tests that you had to go through with your teeth and your eyes, I was I, I was literally thinking of a car analogy, but I was like, I didn't want to sound callous and say oh. it because I was like, you're no. basically a shiny Corvette, you know, like everything checks out, your body's in great shape, everything's working, you just needed a new engine. Yeah. And, and I didn't, I was like, oh God, that sounds really callous when we're talking about the, the life and death of human beings, but it's, yeah. a, it's, it works, you know? Well, doc, Dr. Hassan always laughed because when I was in for the tests, um, I would take a walker and I would, it was really slow, but I would walk around the ward of the hospital. And then one day, one of her nurses on her staff came in and I was, I had my recliner and this is before they did the catheter and I was doing squats behind the, 
the <laughs> recliner and she was out at the desk and she said the nurse came out and said hey just so you know one of your transplant patients is, isn't doing squats in his room and she goes i knew who it was without them even telling me so <laughs> and you know, it's just like you just want to mentally and physically keep busy during that time when you're sort of waiting you're waiting 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 so it was just you know we still have a great laugh about that all the time <laughs> well you got uh so that you went in december 13th you you got it you got a christmas miracle yeah it it it, it was such a crazy crazy day and again when when you're in a hospital room like that and you're waiting i would keep the tv on all night because it was low i didn't want to disturb anybody else but it felt like there was somebody else in the room with me because when you're laying there by yourself and it's the middle of the night you have a lot of time to think about things and there are a lot of things you don't want to think about and and the fact that you know if you're lucky and you get a donated heart as you mentioned early there are no living heart transplant donors that's the that's the unfortunate part of this and and why i think of my donor and my donor's family every day um but but waiting it out on and christmas eve day they, they and ironically they moved my room a day before and they told me they were taking me down it was the lucky suite it was on the corner and it was this big suite and they say the two people we've moved there before have been lucky enough to get transplants and so they moved me down and christmas eve day started out pretty much you know emily came to the hospital and visited and um two of my great friends uh Darius blackford who's uh you may know through carl he's our race director here in columbus um he and his wife invited emily over for christmas dinner and i said hey christmas eve dinner i said go get out of here for a while and she was going to come back and you know hang out with me and watch a movie and and because you can sleep over in the suite and she was going to sleep over well before she was getting ready to leave um the phone in my room rang and i'm like you know who calls on a landline anyway <laughs> that's weird so, you know and, and the two times i picked up before it was you know a wrong number it was some service or something so i didn't pick it up and then dr amani who was a, a another great physician on my team came into our room and we were standing there and he sort of jokes and said don't you ever answer your phone and Emily are like, yeah, we've got our cell phones right here. I mean, and he said, we found a heart for you. And it was, I, I just sort of laid back and just sort of blew air out of my lungs a little because I, I, I didn't know what to think. You know, Emily was obviously, you know, she was crying because she was emotional about it. And I just had a million thoughts. But the first thing that came into my mind was not necessarily, oh, wow, this is incredible. It was somebody unfortunately passed away and no matter what religion you are or what you worship um, that is a holy time for many people during the year and my first thought was oh my god there is a family somewhere that is on the opposite end of us and it that will never ever go away and i sort of i felt guilty at first because i was going to potentially get this life-saving heart and there was this family who was going to be mourning the loss of their loved one for the rest of their lives. And, and I, I just, it, it took me a while to just sort of take a deep breath and get past that. 
and go, okay, what's the process? So they, you know, they went through the process with me that they would fly, that the physician team would go find this heart. They would assess that if it's going to be a go or not, because sometimes, unfortunately, in the past, they've told people they're going to get the a donor heart. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. So they had to come back and tell them, you know, we're not going to do it right now. Um, so you sort of had to wait to get the final thing, but that came along pretty quickly. Um, I think that they had been monitoring the situation, you know, with the organ procurement organizations on this. And they just told me, they said, usually it's, we're going to start probably in the middle of the night and, you know, stop eating, stop drinking, you know, and then you have all these people coming, you know, Emily and I called our relatives and called our friends and told them what was happening. And it, it was just, it was crazy because in the business I work in, 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 you know, down at the Ohio General Assembly and I work with legislators and everything, I was get so many people know me because I've been doing it for so long. I was getting texts, I was getting phone calls and you're just sort of like, you're very overwhelmed and you sort of have to push that aside and let other people handle that because you have to be, you have to be keyed in to what was going on. And then throughout the day, um, the timeline kept getting shorter and shorter. Well, we're, we're going to do it earlier. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. So it was just, you're, you're it, it's, it's like you're sitting there and the world is going by you at a million miles an hour. And you're trying to figure out how you're supposed to feel about it and being grateful, <laughs> extremely grateful that this miracle is happening to you, but also coming to the realization that you know, this is what you're going to go through in a few hours. You know, you're going to get somebody's heart in your, somebody else's heart in your chest, and there's no guarantee that it's going to be successful. So you have to prepare all those things. And, and it's just, you know, Emily was there and my dear friends, Bill and Ann Burns were there. They're like family to us. Um, and my brother and sister-in-law and niece all live in Fort Worth, Texas. You know, Emily called them. They were in the middle of a grocery store with a cart full of groceries and they were like, see, ya. they got on a, a, a flight and, you know, got there after my surgery started. But, um, you know, it was it was a chaotic time. And, and I will never forget this for as long as I am blessed to live. But my transplant surgeon, Brian Whitson, came in and he just knelt in front of me and he just looked at me and said, Dan, here's the plan. Here is plan A. And if the plan A, if we find something in there, this is plan B. And I, again, along with Dr. Hassan talking to me about being on the list, I've never felt as calm in a stressful situation, as confident as anyone that I felt Dr. Whitson right there. Oh my gosh. My, <laughs> my, my pulse has increased during that, that entire description of every emotion that you had to sit through and yet you can't your only action i'm sure is to is to just do nothing like you have you as the patient just have to trust that is the only verb that you can probably do in that moment is trust and pray if that yeah. is your if yeah. that's your inclination and yeah. i'm sure even if it's not yours it was the will of many through yeah. that time. Well, I mean, you know, they come in and they, all right, we're going to turn off your pacemaker. It, I mean, it's that kind of stuff. And I'm going, are you sure you want to turn it off before I get down to the room? I mean, but, but, you know, it, it was a whole litany of things that, 
you know, they had to come in and, you know, sanitize me and all this. This is even before they came to get me. Um, and then they came in probably, if I remember correctly, it was probably about 9.45 in the evening. And, they, you know, they put me on a gurney to start to take me. And, you know, the toughest part was I had to take off my wedding ring, which I consider to be my most prized physical possession. And I had to hand it to Emily. And we had, you know, we've been only married for seven months. And, you know, I had to handle it to hand it to her. And, you know, she just looked at me and said, you know, don't leave me, come back. And um, that, that was that was really the toughest huh. thing that we went through, at least for me. Um, you know, that was that was the, the thing. Yeah. And how long did the procedure take? How long did the surgery take? Well, they told us at the beginning it could take anywhere from, you know, six to eight hours and um the the, the ironic thing and again i i was i was busy <laughs> um it, emily and and her parents ended up coming down from massillon which is just as you know a little bit north of columbus and so they put them in this area in in the hospital on the second floor and they said you know there's a phone over there and now this is christmas eve so there's not a lot of people around so um they said hang out here we'll let you know if anything is is what's going on. And so Emily told me later that they came out about, you know, 30 minutes after they took me back and two, two people came out and said, we need to talk to Mrs. Lighty right now. And Emily goes, Oh my God, he died on the table. Well, it found out that they had misplaced the paperwork I had signed. Oh <laughs> and my gosh. and I was, when she told me, I go, why didn't they come out and say, it's nothing. It's not a problem. It's just paperwork. Um, you can't lead with, we need you right away exactly. when your husband's, exactly. our, oh gosh, so I think that's, that's part of the medical system that needs some yeah. work, right? It's just one of those stories that in this whole thing that's going on, you look back and then go, wow. But my <laughs> mine went relatively quickly. I think it was about a three and a half hour procedure. Um, cause Dr. Whitson said, you know, we got in there and everything was perfect. I mean, it was just, you know, we had no complications. We didn't have to deal with any lung issues or liver issues. Um, and so they came out, she, Emily and my family said he came out at 12, uh, probably about 1230 and said everything went, it couldn't have went better. And they said, you know, his new heart started beating on its own at 1207. Merry Christmas. And so they went back in and finished me up. And um, the next thing I know that, uh, you know, obviously they took me to the ICU and they let them come back. Uh, what they told me was like about four in the morning or so. And so they were two at a time and everybody was just sort of looking into me. But I remember waking up maybe around 10 in the morning or so. And I was obviously on a breathing tube, so I couldn't speak. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, um, it was quite a, quite a thing. You know, the, uh, the physician that I spoke to a couple of months ago who had her transplant, she remembers when she woke up, you know, a day or two later when she could really sort of assess, uh, you know, how she was feeling. She said that she could feel almost everything like because she had grown up and had so many years of having such a faint heartbeat and like everything was work that when she had this like vibrant new heart in her, 
everything was amplified. Like she could feel her hair. She could feel like everything was just so wonderful. Did you, could you sense a difference? I, I could. Um, when I had the breathing tube in, I, I mean, I struggled with it. I mean, because they, they, and Dr. Hassan said, I strapped you down for a reason because I knew if you struggled with it, you'd want to take it out. So they strapped my legs and my arms down and I did struggle with it because they said, you know, ironically, I did so well that I was already breathing over it. But they were like, well, we didn't want to take it out because if we do and something went wrong, we've got to innovate you and nobody wants to do that. So they had to leave. I felt that right away. Um, but once we got, you know, we took it out and everything. And the first thing I really remember was hearing Emily's voice and she came over and she said, hey, it's Emily. If you if you recognize who I am, squeeze my hand. And I squeezed her hand. And I, I also remember when they took out the tube and I was aware and I, I felt, yeah, I felt more vibrant. I felt like, oh, wow, there's blood actually getting to my areas of my body that it hadn't been. This is you know, I felt mentally more tuned in a little bit. And I just remember her telling me that she and, and Bill Burns, my best friend, who Carl knows very well, um, when I would when they came, they were the first two to come in the room to see me. And they stood in front of my heart monitor and they watched it be a regular heartbeat. Because when Emily and I started dating in 2013, she had she had known me um, from her work in the past at the State House, but she goes, I've never, you know, we've never been together without you being sick. And she said, we watched, there were no PVCs, there were no, it was a normal heartbeat and a normal pulse rate. And she said, they both looked at each other and said, I, I can't believe this, that, you know, you're, you're going through this right now. So um, I, I did feel that way. It took me a couple of days though, really to, it, it didn't come right away unlike the other situation. It took me a little while, but I think that's because I had so much going on and um, just trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. But I, I did feel better. I did feel better right away. When was she able to put your ring back on your finger? Uh, later that day. Oh, so, that's great. That's yeah. so great. That's like that moment I'm sure had to be um, just a second wedding for the two of you. Yeah, it, it, it really was. Um, it, it just... It was a situation where, um, you know, it, 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 between two people, we didn't say a lot. You know, she just said, here, let me give this back to you. Yeah. And but but the way we looked at each other, you could tell. Yeah, there's there was some some insane significance about that, for yep. sure. For sure. That moment had to be special um, between the two of you. And did you experience any? complications because I know one of the one of your biggest goals was to get back to quote unquote normalcy uh, as much as you could and as quickly as you could. Did you hit any major speed bumps along the way? I was lucky not not a lot. I had some with like my digestive system um, because they were now pumping all this these medications into me and and I think that any uh, organ transplant person sometimes goes through it. Where you know, I, I I jokingly said I've never had so many people interested in my bathroom habits since I was a young kid. Uh, but, but that's that's one of those things that you know you've got to you know unfortunately work on. But I I was lucky in the sense that um, in all the tests I did, uh, no signs of rejection. 
um, because I'd have to go in every two weeks and um, they would do an incision through my neck and put a catheter in there. And then they would check the pressures in the heart chamber and then they take a low piece of tissue and then they would run it for rejection. Um, and, and I, I did really well on that. And, and the thing that startled me the most was Emily and I were in with Dr. Whitson probably about less than two weeks after my transplant. And he said, I just want to let you know, he goes, the heart we took out of you was four times the size of a normal heart. It had hardened and had spread out where part of it was pressing against my left lung. He goes, so obviously it was making it very difficult for you to get as much air as you needed. And he said the bottom of it was sitting on the top of your stomach. Oh my gosh, it had enlarged that much. Correct, correct. He said, you know, we we, we haven't seen a lot like that. So um, the timing on when we were able to do that, I mean, we were we were running out of time. Um, and, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm so blessed and uh, thankful that this was able to happen. Yeah. And that was, you know, seven years ago at this point. And so I, again, thank you for sharing that back with me in such detail. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've told the story countless times I know, but when you get to tell it, it's, I hope it's like telling it for the first time because it's reaching new ears every time you tell it. Well, it's, it's, it's more so you know, I, I'm so thankful, obviously, to the team at Ohio State, but to my donor and the yeah. family. And every time I take a run and, it, you know, time doesn't matter, distance doesn't matter. You know, I, I do a little something on my own every time I am on a bike or every time I take a run just to sort of mentally thank my donor and everyone. Because, I mean, that it, it's just such a it, while I'm, a, you know, some people have called me the walking miracle with what I'm doing. Again, there is that family that seven years later is still dealing with that loss. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have always tried to say that publicly to them, that if they're listening to something, a podcast like this, or reading that interview I did with Runner's World, or listening to the speeches I give, that I want that family to know how important they are to me and their loved one was for just making this all possible. And, and, and I think about that every day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and one way of honoring that life is, was for you to get back to doing the things that you love with the people that you love. And it was very important for you to get back to running or whatever it was going to be, uh, you know, in this next phase of your life. Why was it so important for you to seek that, that quote unquote normalcy again? I, I, I think that's the right word. Um, because, people laughed at me because of, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, I came back three or four weeks after the transplant and they allowed me to go out and walk when I went home. And they said, well, how, how much did you walk? I said, well, I walked 13 miles on Saturday. That <laughs> and they're like, what? You're, you're, no, you're, you're, no, that, so we, we had to have, you know, the sit down and, you know, we had to talk about a plan and all this, but, but it, 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 it was, the word is normalcy because running with my friends and training and that's normal for me. And, and talking to a lot of other, you know, just heart transplant recipients or other organ transplant recipients, that is the key word. You wanna bring back, you're, you're acutely aware of the special nature of who you are now, but you wanna get back 
to honor both your donor and the transplant team, you want to just get back to that normalcy. And my normalcy is getting up and, you know, training and running and biking and swimming and all that. That's my normalcy. And some people don't understand that. They're like, well, you, know, you don't have anything to prove, Dan. I mean, you've done all these marathons and Ironman. And I said, it's not about that at all. It's about the normalcy of me putting on my running shoes and going out the door and being able to do something I never was quite sure I was going to be able to do again. That made me feel alive. That, that, that what might be boring and routine to some people, that really every day, that's like, oh, wow, I'm so blessed to be able to do this. I love to do it, not because I want to run races again and set times. It's, you know, because I have to go much slower with my transplanted heart. Um, but it's my routine again. This is what I remember. This is when I was very happy running with my friends or go, you know, being a pacer on the Cliffs uh, Bar national team, things like that, and going places and helping people. That's that's what it's about for me. Oh, gosh, I love that. And in 2017, two years after your almost two years, because I know the Columbus Marathon is in October every year. It's one of my favorite weekends. Uh, almost two years post-op, you ran the Columbus Marathon. What was that like? That had to just be magical. It was unbelievable because um, at, one of the th first things I said when I could talk after they took my breathing tube was out was I asked Dr. Hassan, when can I start training for the marathon? <laughs> he said, of course you would say that to me. Um, they, and, I, and I petitioned very hard for them to let me do the marathon in 16. Um, because four months after the transplant, I had gone to Cincinnati with Emily, who was running the full marathon, and we did it as a fundraiser for organ donation. And so I, I made a deal with them. I said, hey, you know, I've obviously walked 13 miles. Can I, you know, in Cincinnati, can I walk? And then on the downhills, can I run a little? And so we did that. So I was able to do that less than four months afterwards. And so I really pressed hard to try and get to be able to do the marathon in October. And they said, uh, no, so, but I did the half. I ran the half completely. And that, that was a big emotional thing because obviously, you know, um, at the time I had just been named the new chairman of the marathon as I, my dear friend, Bill Burns, uh, was the past chair. Bill and I have been friends for a lot of years. Darius Blackford is a, a huge friend of mine as a race director. And so Emily ran the half with me. And then when we got there, a lot of my friends came down from the stands and we have a great picture of us at the end, just having this big group hug. So when the marathon came the next year and I was able to do the full thing, uh, one of my other dear friends uh, from the Cliff Bar pacing days, Lisa Drake, who lives in Chicago, who went through some breast cancer issues herself and who we commiserated about our health scares. And I would, I flew to Chicago to visit her. She surprised me and flew into Columbus and ran part of the race with me wow. and then ended up finishing with me as did Emily because she was hurt that year and couldn't run the full. So it, when we crossed the line, it was just, you know, I, I, I just sort of burst into tears and I'm not a big crier or anything, but it was just, it was emotional for me, but it was sort of, a thank you that I could give to my donor, my friends, my family, and my my team at Ohio State, everybody who had joined together in, in symmetry to make that moment possible. 
the, doing that race was the best way I could say thank you to them because they fixed me, they made me whole again, um, both physically and mentally. And, and I, I wanted to do it just to say thank you. That's the best way I could do it because you returned me to normalcy. That was my normalcy. And it's just such a beautiful description and visualization of what becoming an organ donor can do for somebody too. I think it's, you know, once again, our, our system is maybe a little callous in how we go about things. You know, it's like you go to the, the DMV and they're like, do you want to be an organ donor or not? And you're, you know, in that moment, you're like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what, what, and yet when you see the living result of what, uh, a very simple action can take, you know, just checking a box sure. <laughs> on your driver's license can lead to this new life for somebody else. Um, it's such a simple step to make, but we often don't connect those dots. So yes, it was a way for you to say thank you to these people. But I also think it's a, a beautiful demonstration of, of what we can do as humans for each other if given the opportunity. Correct. I mean, and, and I've worked with, you know, there's Lifeline of Ohio. There's a lot of organ, great organ procurement groups who do educational activities. And I think there, a lot of times there, whether it's religion or certain cultures or lifestyles or whatever, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about organ donation and about not only what it involves and, you know, because is it okay with if whatever your religious uh, vernacular is? And, and, and I think that those groups do a great job in educating the public and taking away a lot of the misconceptions in some communities. You know, I've, I've even heard that, oh, you know, they keep a patient alive because they simply want to harvest their organs. And it's like, you know, I understand that. And I'm not saying that that's a negative on the people who may think that. But we do have a lot of education because I, I do a lot of speaking and I just said, look, I'm the living proof of what this can do. Um, I mean, I'm not here without somebody making uh, a, the most unselfish choice that person could make in their entire existence. I'm here because of that. So um, I think we have a long way to go, but you're right. I, it, it, doing the marathon and doing that kind of stuff to encourage people to be an organ donor is, is really also part of the message too. Yes, thank you for that. And I have two more questions for you. And I, I, first of all, thank you so much for sharing everything about your transplant and and the the after effects. This next question is a little more rooted in just what is your advice? You know, as chairman of the board for the Columbus Marathon, I don't know what all of that entails, but I'm sure a lot of it is being an advocate and a voice of promotion for this wonderful event. And if you've never done the Columbus, Ohio Marathon, oh my gosh, for God's sakes, do it because it's actually an emotional roller coaster because it's, you know, sp sponsored a lot in part by uh, Children's uh, Hospital there. And is it um, still, I hope? And, and yet I remember like every mile there would be a, a, you would run a mile in honor of a, of a patient at Children's Hospital. So it was, it was just, a, again, another beautiful gesture of, of how, what we're doing, you know, 25,000 people on a race course, like how that little simple gesture can help save the life of somebody else. And my question ultimately in all of that is, let's say somebody like, 
when I first started running, I didn't know what I was doing. I was too scared to run a marathon. I, I was afraid I was going to injure myself. Like, what's your advice just for, for like new runners who at some point in life want to make that a goal? I, I was, you know, we've all been, if you've ever run a marathon, you were a beginner at some point. I mean, I had the same questions that a lot of people have. How do I train? Uh, I, I tell people the basics. I said the most important thing when you make that decision, a couple important things. Go to a professional store and get fitted for the proper running shoe for your foot and for your stride. Um, because you're going to be on your feet a lot and you need a comfortable running shoe to get a training plan. Um, there are a million of them out there in Columbus, you know, myself and Darius Blackford and a, a, a gentleman late uh, 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 who created Marathoner and Training. It's the training group. We did this back in 2001. Um, there's people of all speeds and all abilities but you have to have a training plan because a lot of people, when they decide to run the marathon, they go, oh my gosh, I'm going to go out and they get excited. And then they go out and run too much at the beginning and get hurt because that is the worst thing. So I would say, you know, if you're focusing, you can pick up the particulars about, hey, what's a gear bag? What, you know, my nutrition, you can pick all that up. But the mindset you should have, I believe, in your first marathon is, you just want to get to the finish line and your time. You're, I know we all have, I have time goals back then. Everybody has a time goal, but um, you're you're going to embark on something that less than one percent of the world's population can do. You should be proud of that. But there's a science to it. There's logic to it. And just enjoy the experience. You know, go join a training group because you like me making great friends that we did with MIT um, and, and, and come to Columbus. I'm biased. We have great, we have great sponsors in nationwide insurance and nationwide children's hospital. As you alluded to, I think it's mile eight or nine of the marathon. We run by the hospital and then we have a lot of children and family either out front if the weather's good or depending on the health status, they're up in the window, sort of like Iowa football does with their children's hospital. Um, it, it's so meaningful to those families and kids when you're running by and you're helping raise money for them. You know, we've been able to do in our existence and our partnership with the hospital, we've been able to do over $11 million in contributions to the hospital. Um, so I, I, I applaud anybody who wants to run a marathon. And the other message I would say is even if you're not ready to do, we have a half, um, Anybody who does a half marathon, I'm in awe of because, you know, you're getting out there, you're getting off the couch, you're getting out of your chair. I've heard so many people over the time go, oh, I'm just running the half. I don't believe that at all. That's a heck of an accomplishment. I'm, I'm running the half this year. Um, you know, doing a half or doing any distance is great. But if you're going to tackle the marathon, just take your time, prepare early. Don't wake up about two weeks before and go, I want to do the marathon. Um, but <laughs> do some re put some research into it. I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen. Uh, but, I'm only laughing because I may have done that a time or two. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I, mean, I, I think there's a way to do it, but put in your mindset, you're doing this for fun. You're not a professional, um, but there's a way to do it. And, and it's a great experience. Once you cross that line for the first time, 
it will give you such an adrenaline rush and you're either going to say i'm never doing it again or you're going to be like me and get the bug and go hey i'd love to do that again yep yep and you already answered my final question which was which race is next and you said you're doing the the half yeah there's me that's still pulling about doing the full um but you know we'll, we'll see how that is awesome awesome well dan thank you so so much for your time today in the middle of your work day for sharing your story for teaching us all what gratitude looks like in action and i think that we forget you know sometimes we we wake up and we're just we feel like we're supposed to just be grateful all the time and we don't know how to do that we don't know how to put that in action and and um, you are a living example of how to do that and you don't have to have uh, somebody else's heart in your body to give thanks to people around you. Well, it's, thank you. It's important to us. I mean, my Emily and I and my brother and, and, and sister-in-law, um, we started a fund at Ohio State. Um, it's called Rita's Corner of the World Fund. It's named after my mother. Um, we started that. Um, and, and if we have time, I'll just tell a quick story. Please. Oh my God, please. We, uh, my mother, my mother was single mother. My, my adoptive father passed away when I was very young and she raised my brother and I, and one of the most meaningful conversations we ever had was, um, she once told me, you know, how proud she was of me. Cause she goes, you know, I watch you and you really care about other people and you try and help them. And I said, well, yeah, but it, I don't think it's really that much cause you know, you're not changing the world. And she said, hey, you know, you don't have to change the world. If you improve somebody's little corner of it, just think if you put all those corners together, like in a mosaic, what kind of great picture you can create for the world. So I always remembered that conversation with her. So when we decided to create the fund at Ohio State, um, we named it, I decided to name it after her because she's my hero. She's passed away in 2003, but she's my hero in life for what she went through, the difficult life she did. Um, but she made such an impression on my life. We wanted to honor her, but we also wanted to honor her, that conversation that you don't have to donate millions of dollars to a fund to make a significant difference in the life. So when we did this with Ohio State, it helps heart transplant patients, their families, and some of the amazing research they're doing at Ohio State. So um, that's that's an overt way that we try and give back to the community that saved my life. But as far as gratitude goes, it's something that goes on mentally for me every day. Um, sometimes we still, you know, we talked about it early, you battle with the guilt a little bit about what you know the circumstances are. But I just, you know, I, I'm so grateful and my family is so grateful that, you know, people got together as a community and helped make sure I'm here. And, and that's something I try and let people know every day. Is that a fund people can donate to? Is yes. An yes. If you go on to the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, if you if you just go and Google or something and type in Rita's Corner of the World Fund at the Ohio State University, it'll give you a link to go there. And, and I can send you the direct link if you want to use it. 
I would love to put that in the show notes for sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, thank you again. And it's the Ohio State University for yeah. anyone who yeah. <laughs> yeah. officially <laughs> trademarked apparently now. Well, Dan, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Uh, I see you've got like a busy desk behind you. That means you, you <laughs> yeah. look very important. Uh, uh, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> it's a busy desk. Well, Thank you. And I, if I don't see you this October at the marathon, I'll definitely see you at a future. Well, well no thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. I yeah, hope you will come visit us and, and make sure if you do, you get a hold of me. I sure will. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Gary. Rita's Corner of the World Fund is such a beautiful tribute to his mother. And the link to donate to that fund is in the show notes of this episode at podpage.com forward slash I could never do that. And I th- like to close the show by reading just a few sentences from that web page that Dan wrote. And he says, the fund's namesake is a direct result of a conversation I had with her many years ago when she reminded me that people do not always have to do large acts of kindness to change the world. Mom said that, quote, sometimes we all need to just focus on improving our own little corners of the world. If many people can do that, Just think of how many corners we can assemble to create an amazing mosaic in a better world. And he goes on to say, the Rita's Corner of the World Fund is our small attempt to give back to the very large community that saved my life. It is meant to honor heart donors and their families, healthcare and hospital caregivers at all levels, and those waiting on transplant lists. It is our hope that this fund will provide both needed patient services to heart transplant recipients at Ohio State, along with funding to conduct crucial breakthrough research in organ transplantation. In dreaming a little, wouldn't it be amazing if our new fund could help provide the needed resources that create a new little corner of the world through research discoveries that allow all transplant recipients to receive their miracle call and have a second chance at life. Let's do this. Let's turn any of those I could never feelings into improving our own little corner of the world. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.